Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Plenty of us love to eat oysters, but have you thought about the role they play in improving water quality? Coming up, we'll hear from a Yukon researcher about local efforts to help shellfish restoration in Long Island Sound. Tessa Getchis says Connecticut is top 10 in the country for clam and oyster production. We'll learn how the industry has remained sustainable. And we'll also be joined by longtime oysterman Norm Bloom of Cops Island Oysters, based out of Norwalk. That's later. First, plenty of federal infrastructure money is coming into Connecticut, and that includes millions to help protect the sound. How will it be used? Joining us now on Zoom is Bill Lucy, soundkeeper with Save the Sound. Bill, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Lucy. Great to be back. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I was thinking back to that conversation, Bill, I think it was in 2017, shortly after you took on the Soundkeeper role. For listeners who may not know a lot about what a Soundkeeper does, can you briefly talk about your position? Sure. So... The original Long Island soundkeeper was a man named Terry Backer, and he was a commercial fisherman that noticed the changes in water quality. And he was frustrated that he couldn't do anything to clean it up. Um, And he met some folks over in the Hudson that were using the Clean Water Act, which was a fairly new act back in 1972. It's going to be its 50th anniversary, actually, this next year to be able to go after polluters as citizens and start cleaning things up. So that's essentially what we do at Save the Sound. Um, And my position as Soundkeeper is we do a lot of water quality monitoring and enforcement of pollution laws. And water quality, definitely important. You grew up in Connecticut. And I remember you telling me, you know, back in the 80s, it was pretty bad. What's it like now, Bill? Well, it's a lot better than it was Um, back in the 80s is when it really reached its worst um, state as far as hypoxia, when there's no oxygen in the water to the point where even the lobsters were getting asphyxiated because there just wasn't enough water, I mean, oxygen in the water column. So since that time, uh, people have been using the Clean Water Act and state and federal funding to improve the sewage treatment plants and educate the public on all the sources of pollution. So we've seen a steady increase in water quality since that time. So getting back to the millions coming in from this federal infrastructure uh, law, you know, how will it be spent? What's the top of your list, Bill? Well, it's uh, when I first came in, I remember the first, my first day on the job, actually, I was doing a press conference with Rosa DeLauro in New Haven, and we were celebrating the funding to steward Long Island Shound going from $4 million to $8 million. Uh, the, the new infrastructure bill 
is going to provide an additional $21 million for the next five years. And that's on top of $30 million that's in the, the budget right now. We have a continuing resolution I just heard this morning that'll last till mid-February. Um, and then in the EPA budget, it may go up another $10 million. So we'll have close to $60 million to restore that uh, production and uh, water quality and habitat in Long Island Sound. And I would say my priorities would be to really focus on the shoreline habitat and living shorelines is one component of that. Continue funding the researchers that are tracking all the water quality trends that we're seeing change with uh, climate alterations and just keep doing our bread and butter. Keep, keep changing the way water gets into the sound and the way pollution gets in, managing stormwater and upgrading our sewage treatment plants and our septic systems. You mentioned um, restoring shoreline habitat. So talk us through that, especially when we think about some of the storms that Connecticut's had in the last decade. Yeah, so we've had some pretty big storms uh, recently and prior to that. And there's been a lot of infrastructure damage. A lot of houses got knocked down. A lot of areas were flooded. A lot, a lot, of, a lot of big costs associated with those storms. And the first reaction of people is it's put up a seawall and block it. So, and I spent a lot of time traveling around the coast of Long Island Sound and I see a lot of seawalls. And the problem with seawalls is they just transport that erosion to the neighbor. So you might be protected, but that current's gonna hit up against that seawall, go down the coast and start eating away somewhere else. So we're seeing loss of wetlands. Um, we're seeing loss of beaches and towns have to keep putting sand on on them to maintain their their beaches for the residents and tourism. So what we really would like to see is the science of living shorelines uh, be increased. And that's a big topic right now. It's fairly new. The science isn't completely worked out. And when you have a living shoreline, you're protecting infrastructure, say a dune system, but you're also providing habitat for shorebirds when they migrate, horseshoe crabs to come up. Uh, you're filtering the water through the sand, so when it gets into the sound, it has a lot less pollution and nutrients in it, which is fantastic for the overall ecosystem and, and shellfish in particular. You're hearing Bill Lucy here on Where We Live, Soundkeeper with Save the Sound. If you want to join us, 888-720-9677, as we talk about the health of Long Island Sound and the importance of keeping it healthy. Coming up, we're going to be talking to a longtime oysterman and learning about efforts uh, with shellfish restoration in Long Island Sound. Uh, but Bill, when we think about the health of the sound related to uh, pollution and uh, bacteria monitoring, the role that municipalities play, the role your organization plays in that and how this, how this money again will help with those efforts. Yeah. So one of the programs that's funded by this money is our uh, unified water study. And we now have 24 different citizen groups all around the sound from New York city out on long Island, all the way up to Eastern Connecticut. And we're monitoring over 40 bays and harbors. So that funding will allow us to keep doing that. And the reason that's important is you need to monitor long-term. Anytime you're monitoring any environmental parameter, you have to have several years of data in order to really figure out what's going on. So that's one thing that's going to be funded by this. And then there's a number of different projects out there. The, the states 
and Sea Grant, for example, they have different grant programs that interact with uh, people who are using the sound, such as shell fishermen. Um, also, they have regulatory programs and monitoring programs of their own. There's a, just a vast array of people at the federal, state, local, and nonprofit level that are monitoring Long Island Sound, and they all need funding. And we really work together well. We all know each other, and we try and complement each other's efforts to regulate this pollution. And the funding is really critical. And if you think about the value of the sound, uh, just, the, just the shellfish industry, I've heard numbers of $30 million just for that one industry. And we have all sorts of marine trades out there. So the, the overall value of the sound compared to 50 or $60 million to make sure that it's clean is, um, it's well worth the money. And it hasn't been funded at this level since the, uh, beginning of the geographic program. Mm. So, yeah, I think other funding things are going to include uh, uh, coastal wetland restoration, um, research into the ability of seaweed and shellfish to clean up the water, remove nutrients. Um, it's, it's a whole array of things. Stormwater is another big one that we've gotten involved with because if you don't have a healthy watershed, you're not going to have a healthy Long Island Sound. So a lot of the work and some of this funding is going to go off the Sound up into the inlands where uh, pollution is entering our rivers and bringing it down to the Sound. Uh, Bill, let's talk more about the shellfish industry, uh, the people that uh, make their living off the water. And we reap the benefits, right, when we, for those of us who eat shellfish and, you know, you growing up remembering uh, the places that, that you fished where it was healthy um, and able to sustain this industry. Why this industry needs special attention in our state? Well, there's a lot of pressures on the industry right now. One is just all the building and uh, the population growth can really squeeze water quality. Um, it's also difficult for, I really think there's a, there's an ability to expand the shellfish industry beyond where it is now. And they need space to do that. So we need to make sure that there's working waterfront available for new future endeavors as this industry grows. And shellfish by their very nature filter the water. So they take a lot of that extra, we have too many nutrients going in. And so if you have a very intensive shellfish industry that's utilizing that pollution actually as a resource, as a food for the shellfish and they're removing it. So when those shellfish are harvested and transported to market, you're actually cleaning up the sound. Um, from the nutrient issue. And I, I really think that at an industrial scale, you can have measurable impacts on water quality sound wide. When you mentioned too many nutrients, is that what eventually leads to that hypoxia? That is, it, it creates algae blooms and you get too much. Uh, it's just like putting too much fertilizer on your tomato plants. You get these big giant green plants with no fruit. It just puts the whole system out of balance. And we have lawn fertilizers and we have nitrogen coming in from the air and carbon coming in from the air and all this. The, the, the system designed to work with a certain balance of, of nitrogen, carbon and, and phosphates. And so when that gets out of balance, you start having water quality issues, which ultimately lead to the law oxygen, which stresses out the whole system. And shell fishing is one of the best ways that we know that can 
really recreate that balance in the sound. Of course, you have to fix up your sewage treatment plants and tighten up your collection systems and not have your septic tanks leaking out. But when that's all done, you're still going to really need to have this natural ecosystem service that the shell fishing industry provides to just create this stability and balance within the sounds ecosystem. You mentioned that the shellfish industry uh, could expand in our state and efforts uh, to help them. I'm thinking back to this new law that designated shellfishermen under a tax break similar for for farmers. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, that was a bill I worked on um, with Representative Joe Gresco this last session. And I've seen it in a lot of places um, in my professional career where the a lot of the seafood industry, they have diesel boats. They get up really early in the morning. Um, if you're a lot, by back in the lobster days, I fished out of Mount Sinai. We had, you know, big stacks of herring. Maybe it was a little smelly. So all the recreational boats didn't really want folks right next to them. So we were kind of had our own little setup over there on Long Island that was away. And if you, if you, if you're going to try and compete with, folks who have um, want to do residential condominiums or big houses on the shoreline. There's no way that someone who's in a, a fishing industry with all the variables and all the risks and the ups and downs of the ecosystem in the market to be able to go and buy waterfront property when you're competing with developers. It's the same thing with farming. You know, if a farmer's barely making it, working really hard and a developer says, hey, I could put 15 houses on your farm, it's a pretty hard, it's a pretty hard thing to compete with. So what this law does is it reduces the tax burden for shell fishing, uh, the shell fishing industry folks. So they're not paying residential taxes on a piece of working land. And that allows them to continue without too much tax burden. And it also provides opportunity in the future for the next generations to get into it. Mm. Again, this is now law. Was there a lot of work that needed to be done behind the scenes? Any tension from municipalities along the shore where you know they're not going to be getting a particular, uh, as you mentioned, uh, uh, tax base from you know big waterfront homes? Uh, I'm just wondering if, if you can talk a little bit about the work that was done to get here. Yeah, that was absolutely a tension. Um, the towns are obviously not happy when you reduce their grand list. So that's always a concern but to put it in perspective i travel up and down as i mentioned the coast there's very little mileage of working waterfront left on long island sound it's mostly residential or heavy industrial where you have tank farms and that sort of thing so um what little is left right now is at a premium and i think the towns hopefully realize and i know it wasn't an issue everywhere Um, Because out east, they already make accommodations for their shell fishermen out by Mystic in that area. So the overall impact to the grand list, I think, isn't that large. So in the end, it, it, um, it passed overwhelmingly. You're hearing Bill Lucy here on Where We Live, Soundkeeper with Save the Sound. Coming up, we're going to talk to Norm Bloom of Cops Island Oysters based in Norwalk. And do you have questions about the shellfish industry in our state? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. Maybe you're one of the 300 or so that are working in this industry. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Thank you.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're focused on Long Island Sound today, talking about the health of the sound and the people who make their living off of it. We heard soundkeeper Bill Lucy say shellfishing is a multi-million dollar industry in our state. Hearst, Connecticut reported recently there are 70,000 acres of cultivated shellfish beds along the shoreline, including in Norwalk, where my next guest is based. On Zoom with us now is Norm Bloom, owner of Cops Island Oyster in Norwalk. Norm, welcome to the show. Hello, how you doing? I'm doing well. So tell us about your family business. How far back does it go? Um, well, my father and uncle started and they go back in the 40s. And then um, I probably started uh, Cops Island Oysters, Norm Blumenson, around ni- uh, 94. And so tell us about the business and how many oyster beds do you maintain in the sound? And for those of us who don't know much about it, what the farming process looks like, Norm? Yeah, well, you know, Cops Island, we're we're a wild farmed oyster. You know, we do all our seeding and everything's done out out in the wild. Uh, We have a use of, through people, roughly around 12,000 acres. Probably a small percent of that where it's actually oyster grounds. And so what else are you farming? Lobsters, clams? Well, we do we do clams. Mm-hmm. I mean, clams live wild, usually in the softer bottom, you know, because the whole sound is not all hard bottom. You know, so you got a lot of areas that are mud and soft, and some areas are subject to storms. So if you put oysters there, you know, the winds will, will blow them away, and, and you end up uh, losing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, we support lobster boats. We got a lobster boat running out of here. We support him a little bit. What about the hatchery side of things? Yeah, well, you know, like I say, we're we're wild farm where we save our shell, we plant the shell, and then we put the shell in the water to catch it. And we're doing good with that now. And and my son, Jimmy, they, they want to start pushing into the hatchery. So we're kind of investing into the hatchery part of it to try to help the wild. We figure we get the two working together, that it's going to make us more sustainable in the market out there. Um, we're working with a mystic oyster up there in mystic. So I, I think having the two of them helping, it's going to help support each, each one to make them more, more successful. So we know you're a longtime oysterman, and so again, for us, for people who may not know a lot about uh, shell fishing, when you talk about sustainability and the importance of getting into the hatchery side of things, can you explain that more for us? 
Well, like, you know, for us to be in the market, our customers want to know they can get a hundred bags every day. So we got to make sure we can do that. So we need a huge volume behind it to make sure that could be possible to do that six days a week year, year round. So with the hatchery, it's just going to help us more support that. I mean, we got hit by those storms back in, uh, Irene and Sandy and that Nor'easter in, uh, 2010, you know, they kind of wiped us out pretty good. And that's really what got us started thinking, Hey, we need another way, you know, to, to produce seed. That, that's what got us into the hatch, hatchery part of it. And you mentioned produce seed, so that involves the shell, right? Can you, can you explain that for us? Yeah, well, well, what we do is all year when you're working, we save the shell. And we put the shell, on it. we call it a shell lot. Then from there, we'll put it on the beach and we dry it. And then come summer when the oysters spawn, and we'll take that dry shell and we'll spread it out in the intercoastal areas. And that's where the, when the larvae gets about a week or two, it'll swim down to the bottom and it'll use the shell to, to hang on to. Uh, so you sell your product across the country. And then in Connecticut, you mentioned, uh, I think, a, a location in Mystic. But but tell us more about, you know, your business in the state and and how the pandemic impacted you. Yeah, the p- pandemic was hard. I mean, you know, our, our buyers, everybody, nobody had a clue it was happening. I mean, we worked right up till, you know, Saturday, we had the trucks all loaded. Monday morning, the trucks went out. And then we heard Monday, mid Monday, that everything shut, shut down. So we, we actually had to go out and get all the product and bring it back. But when we lost the market, we lost getting shell and getting the other parts. So the farm was going to take a big hit. So we had to figure out how we can keep the farm going without the market. And so tell us how you did that and, you know, how did any federal assistance help you? Well, what we did, we did is we got the boats out because, you know, our crop is a three-year crop. So we can't like just leave the oysters out there, come back next year and start catching them. We have to move them around. Otherwise, they will silt over, you know, they get like a layer of mud on top of them. So we have to constantly bring the oysters up once a year and then put them back down on, on, on the beds. So what we had to do is we got, you know, two people on a boat. We limited our crew way down to try to get the boats out there so we can shift and move. And the biggest problem we had is we, we weren't getting shell. Because usually throughout the year when we're selling our product, we're getting shell every day. You know, we get whatever comes out of the, the market. So, you know, so we had to figure out how to get shell. Otherwise, we're going to be in trouble two, three years from uh, from now. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about the people that work for you, probably longtime employees. And so did any stimulus money help, uh, you know, keep them whole too? And so many restaurants were closed and, you know, you still had, as you mentioned, had work to do, but no place to sell the product. Oh, yeah. No, no. That that, that stimulus money, that, that, that really helped. You know, we were able to get our crew back and do all, all the maintenance, you know, keep, keep, to keep the farm going. Uh, the farm's the biggest part of our business. You know, the market, I only have one boat that does the marketing. The rest of the fleet pretty much just farms and make it so the one market boat can go out every day and catch. 
You're hearing Norm Bloom here on Where We Live, owner of Cops Island Oysters out of Norwalk. You mentioned the storms. I'm wondering when we think about when I had the conversation with soundkeeper Bill Lucy, pollution in the water and importance of monitoring uh, storm water, uh, you know, how that impacts uh, shell fishermen like yourself, Norm. Yeah, well, I, I grew up with uh, Terry Backer and Dick Harris. And uh, growing up with them, they really taught me the importance of uh, water quality. You know, so we we help groups like uh, Bill Lucy and uh, Harbor Watch. There's a whole bunch of groups that we support. It's, it's like a network of uh, people and uh, trying to keep these harbors and maintain what's being dumped in, all the storm drains and, and, and everything. Uh, Connecticut is, I'm lucky to be in Connecticut doing this because they're real supportive of keeping the sound clean. I mean, everybody's good with it. The towns are good with it. You know, so it's good support because if we lose these intertidal areas, that's where all the oysters really start. You know, I mean, my my beds out in the deeper water aren't going to produce oysters. I need the inner harbors. I need these estuaries up and down the whole shoreline. That's where we get the oyster sets, and then we move them out to the market grounds out out there. So, yeah, without the work that Bill Lucy and these other groups do, yeah, we'd be in big trouble. The state does a lot of monitoring, but you're also paying, right? You run your own tests on site? Well, we test up in in the inner harbors. Uh, The state will test and make sure everything's safe outside. And what we do is, is we're more of a tool for the state and for these other groups. You know, we kind of test if we see something, we notify the state or we notify the towns and we pass it on to them. You know, it's, it's more we're, we're more helping them. When we think about the work that you do and your crews, uh, you know, the idea that fishermen are also conservationists, Norm? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, we have to, especially ours, it, it, it's a three-year crop. So if we fail this year, it's not like, oh, I'm going to get it next year. You know, I mean, we're always working way, way ahead and investing in it. And we're tight to the shore. I mean, we're up and down in, in the inner harbors and and everywhere. So once we start losing these inner harbors, then our shellfish beds that are out in the conditional areas are going to be worth not worth as much. You know, and uh, there's also a whole recreational out there, too. I mean, you know, the public can go to these local shellfish commissions in the towns and get licenses to go out and dig clams too. And they're the ones that really first get get hit by, you know, if these if we lose these inner harbors. Norm, you mentioned the recreational grounds for the public. So are you seeding those as well? We help. We 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 always help I mean all the shell fishermen up and down the coast will always help, you know, the local towns. And they'll have certain areas where the public's allowed to go and dig dig shellfish. So we always try to make sure those beds are well well protected and, you know, have, have a good inventory on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, still with us on Zoom, uh, besides Norm Bloom, is soundkeeper Bill Lucy. Bill Lucy, did respond to what Norm has shared with us, uh, again, uh, giving us a, l- a little bit of a glimpse of, of the work that he and his crews are doing. Yeah, absolutely. We have a whole watchdog um, system where if someone smells a pipe that's gone bad, maybe contaminated with sewage. Uh, we work with uh, Dick Harris, who Norm mentioned, um, Sarah Crosby from Harbor Watch. Um, we give reports to the state because the state is monitoring as well. 
And so there is, just ignore them, explain it. There's a whole network of people trying to keep things clean by catching the pollution right when it starts and closing it off, getting it fixed. And the municipalities typically are pretty good about doing that. Um, not always though. So if you go down into Westchester, we had some chronic problems with sewage down there and we used the Clean Water Act to engage with all oh, about 11 towns down there. And one of our plaintiffs actually was a, a shell fishing um, business because those waters are still closed and we'd like to see them open so we could do that, that expansion. So the partnership between the water quality dependent industry like shell fishing, um, the municipalities the, the, and, and the wastewater treatment plant folks, most of them are fantastic. They've been doing a great job of upgrading the sewage treatment plants. Those are the workers that are day to day trying to make sure all the screens are working. Um, it is just it's an amazing Connecticut really does. As Norm said, we're lucky. There's a really good collaboration between federal money, the state regulatory agencies, the towns and the sewage treatment plants trying to do the right thing. And then just citizens in general out there keeping an eye on things. Again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. If you have a question for a soundkeeper, Bill Lucy from Save the Sound. We've been also talking to Norm Bloom, owner of Cops Island Oysters out of Norwalk. And Norm, what would you say, again, a longtime family business, You know, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, before you? What keeps you going every day? Uh, mostly my kids. <laughs> but uh, it, it's just nice to be able to, like I say, work in a state like Connecticut and be part of cleaning the sound and also being able to get benefits from it. You know, I mean, I, I think these these sound waters are, are, are like the jewel of Connecticut. I mean, there's so much so many things people can eat out there. The public can enjoy it, too. You know, it's a it's a huge shared resource and uh, it's just great to be part of it. And I, I, I like being able to you know work out there every day. And, mm. It's really important to hear this uh, shared resource uh, for all of us. Uh, again, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Leanne's calling in from East Haven. Leanne, do you have a question? I do. It's for Bill, yeah. Uh, this is so interesting. Thank you for your participation. I live in East Haven right on the beach, on the sand. And I came here about 18 years ago. And it was a joy to walk this long beach every day and see all the marine life near and uh, out of the water, little tiny crabs and starfish and sh horseshoe crabs and uh, lots of varieties of shells and piping plovers and sanderlings and all sorts of uh, sea life and bird life. And I'm not exaggerating. There's no more starfish. There's no more horseshoe crabs. They don't come up to mate like they used to, which was phenomenal. Uh, no more little crabs in the tidal pools, no more sanderlings. Very rarely do you see those little birds running up and down the beach, if at all, and no more piping plovers on this beach. And I'm an Audubon monitor for the plovers, so I feel fairly confident. And I'm just wondering what's going on. You say things are getting better, but I say things are not looking better. I have another question after that, which is, do you think the... the um, fact that there's an airport here 
that takes off and lands right over this beach and right around these local beaches here have anything to do with it? Because I've noticed when I go up to Hamanasset and when I'm in other places and the inland harbors and so forth, it looks a lot more productive than it does around here. All right, so I'm interested in your comment. Thank you. A lot to unpack there. Bill Lucy, you're also a wildlife biologist. So let's uh, take Leanne's first question about, you know, what she's observing where she lives. Sure. So what I would what I was referring to is the water quality is getting better. Um, but when you get into habitat, we have a lot of changes happening. And a lot of that is climate driven. There's also invasive species that have moved in that weren't around when I was uh, a little kid. Asian shore crabs and and there's a lot there's a lot of um, there's a lot of them I won't go into them now. Um, there are also cycles. So with starfish, they can go up and down. Jellyfish can go up and down. Um, but I think what we're seeing is the habitat degradation, and I think a lot of that is coming from well, for example, Harbor Watch which Dick Harris started, has been doing a trawl survey in the inner Norwalk Harbor for over 30 years. And there's a great paper that they produced, Dr. Sarah Crosby, that showed the change in the species composition and the overall abundance of fish there. One of the observations, uh, aside from temperature getting warmer, which I think is a big factor in what you're seeing, um, is that the bottom composition is changing. So you're going from sandy bottoms and you're getting a lot of fines running off the landscape and that's silting in a lot of these areas. Some people call it black mayonnaise in certain areas. And so that's what Norm's doing in his areas is he's keeping things active and cleaned up. And that's what the Bureau of Aquaculture did um, with some of the CARES Act money, allowed the farmers to go out and clean up some of those grounds that are not silted in. So. Yeah, though the shorebirds are definitely down. Uh, it's great to hear you're part of the Audubon, but you got to remember also that not only is the habitat important in the sound, it's important all along their migratory pathway, and there's pressures all the way down the coast to South America. As far as the horseshoe crabs, I'd encourage everybody to send in comments. There's a public hearing on Monday that Deep Marine Fisheries is holding, and... and the horseshoe crabs have really been down. They're depleted big time. And they're going to reduce the, um, the proposal is to reduce the number of crabs that can be harvested for bait and also to close the times around the, the lunar breeding periods. So when all those crabs come up, you can't just pick them off the beach when they come up the spawn. So I encourage everybody to uh, log into the deep website site and find out more about it and submit comments for uh, horseshoe crab protection. I'm glad that you brought that up, Bill. That's a whole other show that we can do. And I mean, you're hearing Leanne mention some of the, the shoreline birds at risk, uh, some who depend on the horseshoe crab eggs uh, for their uh, migration. It's a really interesting topic. We hope to circle back to that. I wanted to take uh, one more question before we head to break. Mary in Hartford. Go ahead, Mary. Hi. I work on water quality issues in Hartford, but I've heard from friends in Cromwell, Connecticut, that there's a developer that's building a, a warehouse and um, on on wetlands on on a marsh area, and you know towns. I've heard this all uh, from many friends and who live in the what I refer to as the hinterlands, um, that wetlands are being uh, replaced by warehouses because warehouses are are. 
uh, evidently uh, a way for towns to increase their revenues. Will any of the funding from um, this uh, this in, uh, incredible uh, generous uh, funds, federal funds that are going to the Long Island Sound, be used to help towns along the Connecticut River protect their last wetlands? Bill? Yeah, that's a good question. I do know there's some talk about going upriver all the way into Massachusetts to work with sewage discharge um, upriver that ultimately ends up in the Sound. Um, Wetland protection you bring up an interesting point. The, like the I think it's next year, the 50th anniversary for the Inland Wetlands Water Resources Protection Act of the state of Connecticut. Um, people are not supposed to be building in wetlands. There's definitely uh, not uh, consistent enforcement across the board. The state is severely understaffed, but there will be 319 money uh, as part of all of this, and those are grants that local groups, that sounds like you may work for one, can apply for to do wetland restoration and enhancement. Of course, also land trusts are a great way to just purchase those those habitats so they don't have to have the development threat in the first place. You're hearing Bill Lucy, Soundkeeper would Save the Sound here on Where We Live. He's going to stick around with us. After the break, we're going to talk to a Yukon researcher about the role oysters play in restoration efforts on the Sound. But I first want to thank Norm Bloom, owner of Cops Island Oysters out of Norwalk, for coming on the show. Norm, thanks so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Sounds like a Where We Live field trip in our near future. Thanks, Norm. We'll be back after a short break. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're learning about the role shellfish like oysters play in the health of Long Island Sound. My next guest is working on tools to help inform shellfish restoration in the Sound. Tessa Getchis is an aquaculture extension specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. Tessa, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Lucy. We heard both Bill and Norm talk about how oysters are unique. Uh, You know, they help uh, filter uh, some of, uh, again, these excess uh, nutrients out. But they also do habitat building. Explain that for us and why that's important. Sure. Shellfish like oysters are just incredibly important to the environment. All shellfish serve as a water purifier. They're filter feeders. And when they're feeding, they're cleaning and clarifying the water. But oysters are pretty unique in that they are habitat building. So they need a hard surface to settle on. They prefer oyster shells. And those baby oysters will continue to settle and build these large beds and reefs, which serve for habitat for a number of other marine organisms. So it's that structure that's, that's really important and special. You mentioned all shellfish help filter. Do oysters do an extraordinary job compared to, say, clams? <laughs> extraordinary, but mussels do a great job okay. as well. <laughs> <laughs> mussels, that's a topic for another show. Okay. <laughs> now, I mentioned that you're a big part of this Connecticut shellfish restoration project. So that's a collaboration between the C- Connecticut Sea Grant Deep and the Department of Agriculture. So can you talk about that in terms of um, you know partnering with the industry, but also in, with restoration efforts on the Sound? 
Sure. Well, Sea Grant and a number of agencies and organizations have been working together for years. Um, we first facilitated what is called the Connecticut Shellfish Initiative. That was modeled after NOAA's National Shellfish Initiative, an effort to protect and grow the nation's shellfish populations. And in Connecticut, what we wanted to do was to develop a specific plan to help protect our shellfish populations, to grow aquaculture, the farming of shellfish, to enhance recreational shellfisheries, which are so important along our coastlines. And more recently, what we've been doing is pulling together these groups to sort of set the stage for shellfish restoration. So talk more about that. So there's different types of oyster beds that you're mapping. There's, uh, I guess, quote, designated beds. Can you explain that more for us? Sure. Well, we have a lot of shellfish resources in our state. We have farm shellfish populations. Um, we heard before over 70,000 acres. We also have recreational harvest areas along our coast. And we have what are called designated natural beds. Those are beds that were so important for early harvest of oysters along our coast that they were set aside in Superior Court, um, basically to protect those to sustain the industry. And they have those beds, which um, they have oysters and clams on them, still today support the industry. The vast majority of our oyster harvest really starts on those natural beds. So while they're not natural in the terms that you know, in the sense that we haven't touched them through time, um, they have sustained these industries. So what the shellfishermen are doing, you've heard Norm talk about harvesting oysters from those beds. Um, they're harvesting small seed oysters, and then they're planting them on their private beds. So their seed, rather than originating from a hatchery, originates from the seafloor. But there are very strict regulations that are in place on those designated natural beds that have helped to sustain them for hundreds of years. So the state is restricting the time of year that you can harvest, the quantity that you can harvest, um, the tools that are used, um, and many other measures that, again, that have sustained this industry and that ensure that not only are we providing um, shellfish that we can later eat, but the shellfish are still always in that system so that they're providing the ecological benefits that we derive from them, like water filtration. When you talk about those restrictions, and again, when we think about the shellfish industry, is that done in collaboration with uh, the fishermen? Because again, you know, they're out there making their living off the water, thinking about how regulations impact them. Can you talk about that, Tessa? Absolutely. If the industry didn't have a partnership with the state, these beds wouldn't be there. So they're really working to ensure their own future. So they pay careful attention to maintaining those beds and to help to enhance those beds throughout time. So that's been a huge focus and, and a great partnership that through the Shellfish Initiative, through the Shellfish Restoration Planning Process, which has involved industry, we've been able to, to realize a lot of accomplishments and impacts because of those strong relationships. Bill Lucy is still with us, Soundkeeper from Save the Sound. Uh, Bill, can you talk about this mapping project? Yeah, so the what you have to start with is your inventory of what's out there. So people like Norm and other, other users know where they go, what they need, what they do. Um, 
We also need to know where the seed sources are coming from to repopulate those natural beds. And so these shellfish mappers that are being designed are um, going to inform where maybe we need to do some work, maybe where places are okay. And other places have done this. Um, what's new, I think, is going to be hopefully incorporating like our UWS or Unified Water Study water quality data, which will inform the, you know, how good is the water? If we're going to try and do something somewhere, do we, is it too polluted or is it good enough where we can do some work? Uh, there's also the blue plan, which incorporates a lot of this information and lays it over as far as different uses of the sound. So mapping is just key to planning. Uh, before you even really start going, you need to have a, a good plan. And Tessa, where are you in this process? Is there a report coming out soon to talk about the work? Yes, absolutely. So the blue plan really helped to set the stage because through that process, this inventory of all the environmental data and human use data in the sound was pulled together. And so we drew from that resource to identify all of the shellfish related information and maps that we had that allowed us to identify what we need for better decision making. So it's not only trying to figure out where oysters can grow, but where they'll thrive and provide these important benefits that we derive from them. Uh, Bill, earlier we were talking about, you know, just supporting uh, the shellfish industry, and we heard about how the CARES Act helped uh, oystermen like Norm uh, when the restaurant industry, you know, was shut down during the pandemic, a one-off instance where they were compensated fishermen for the nutrient cycling that oysters offer. Can you talk about why that's significant, and should that continue? Um, I think it is significant because if you look at all the other industries we have, they are given subsidies when there's problems. Um, farming, you have droughts or floods, you know, there's ways, there's insurance and things to cover and federal assistance. And the, the shell fishermen are no different. They, they need to have that same um, stability in their markets to not have great fluctuations. And by the fact that they're providing this ecosystem service, um, there should be some recognition of that. Um, how we go about that is, is interesting and a matter of debate, but I'll give you basically what's happened is we put over $2 billion into cleaning up our sewage treatment plants over the last 15 years. And the, the price per pound of nitrogen removal now is going up. So all the upgrades have happened to a certain level. It was fairly inexpensive to remove, let's say, not excess nitrogen, say $200 a pound. But now when you're really trying to get it really clean it may go up to four or five hundred dollars a pound so talking with gary wick for from the NOAA lab who does a lot of international shellfish work there was a, a system out in the netherlands somewhere where they just it was too expensive to get it that much cleaner so the municipalities partnered with an oyster industry i mean a, a mussel industry there and the mussel industry finished off cleaning up, up the rest of that excess nutrient so there is a fee that's paid to those mussel farmers for that ecosystem service. It's not been done in the U.S. yet, but the, it, it has occurred elsewhere. So that was uh, federal money. Uh, Tessa, when we think about, uh, again, uh, how vital the shellfish industry is in Connecticut, and these nutrient cycling programs, partnering with fishermen, that's not something happening in the state yet. 
It's not, but there's a lot of potential for it in the future. And we've seen some test cases out in Cape Cod, in Maryland, and we're looking, following that very closely. Yeah, it's been a really interesting hour uh, hearing about, uh, you know, the importance of the health of the sound, how it has improved over recent decades and, and the role uh, that fishermen play. Uh, before we run out of time, uh, Bill, when we think about some of, uh, you know, your your goals over the next, uh, you know, few months and a couple of years down the road, when we think about the, the shared resource, as Norm mentioned, what we need to focus on. I think really um, we're doing a good job on all fronts. Bureau of Aquaculture, Sea Grant's doing some great networking and planning for restoration. Uh, for us at Save the Sound, we're really starting to drive down on stormwater pollution because all of that stormwater pollution it is generated way upstate and it all makes its way down to the sound. So we're going to be working a lot with municipalities to start capturing that stormwater before it gets into our streams and rivers and down to the sound. So um, water quality is going to remain our, our main focus. Again, that's Bill Lucy, Soundkeeper with Save the Sound. Bill, thank you. Always a pleasure to hear from you. Maybe next time we'll see each other in person. Yeah, I hope so. It was great. Thank you, Lucy. And also Tessa Getchis was here, Aquaculture Extension Specialist with the Connecticut Sea Grant and Yukon Extension Program. Really interesting project that you're working on, Tessa. We'd love to have you back uh, when that report is out. Thanks, Lucy. Have a great day. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. And Hannes Brown composed our theme song. We hope you have a great weekend. <laughs>